afternoon, everybody. Um, hello. My name is Omar Khulaif. Uh, sometimes I will be going by my podcasting persona name, Dr. O, on occasion uh, during these two days of the 154 Forum. Um, I'm the curator of the Forum, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this edition. I'm going to begin with an introduction to this year's Forum before we proceed to our first session. The Palestinian Lebanese author, curator, and film producer, Rasha Salti, once said to me, consider meteors as they are the favored metaphor for you. Meteors burn out. Please take care of yourself. We had only just met each other. A warm embrace followed after that weekend at the Villa Arson in Nice. I was about to set off on a chapter offered by invisible densities, by assumptions out with my body, out of the bounds of my own person. All that I can say now is that I do wish that I had cared for myself, for my health, for my soul, for my body and my mind, with as much care and precision as Russia had expressed to me on that day. 10 years passed and a burnout for some or for one, as the flame in my head went out New forms of ambition emerged, a desire for a different kind of restitution of self. Much of that growth occurred here, in this city, and had much to do with the inspirational feat of 154, a platform and an act of world building that first came into my orbit through the work of its motivating founder, Turia El-Gilawi, who closed a chapter on one career in order to open a path for countless others to be seen and heard. Koyoko, another force of being and reckoning indeed, opened another door. 154's founding artistic director, a maker of worlds, galvanized communities around undecipherable forms constituting what were once but mere imaginary fields of vision, bringing them into sharp focus. I must begin by saying thank you to them both, for to stand with them here, or indeed sit, as my bum is here, has been one of the great privileges of my career thus far. This year's forum, the 10th anniversary edition, the tin anniversary, as it is fabled, is an homage to the individuals and forces whose unwavering pursuits in art and in life, whose selfless acts of experience have extended beyond any notion of the individual, but rather have contributed to a dream of community. The title of this edition, To Catch Flying Horses from the Sky, the impossible task of dreaming in the present. 
It came to me in a hallucination, or so I thought. I woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, attempting to reach my friend, the writer Sky Arundhati Thomas, who was in Kashmir in search of another story to tell. I tried to reach them. Sky has descended into the foothills, traversing the valley of silk roads connecting the so-called west and east. A plateau. Sky's phone rings out to infinity. Eternity never felt so long. A sky stood in the western anchor of the Himalayas, I began to consider the metaphor of Kashmir, a region fractured, governed simultaneously by the nations of India, Pakistan, and China, once inhabited by a religious minority. And although the result of a varied set of migratory routes, I began to consider the Indian Africans who became my friends while I was living in South Africa and how they reached this home of theirs. Citizens who arrived to the African continent as indentured labor, some as teachers, others as clerks, serving under colonial rule, the majority, however, serving on sugar plantations. The invocation of this proverb thus serves multiple purposes. It is a nod to the polyphonous cultures of Africa and its diaspora the second largest and second most inhabited continent on this earth, so expansive that it geographically could encompass, as Koyo reminded me recently, the landscapes of China, India, the US, and many of Europe's nations. It also speaks to the transversal movement of bodies and souls, creolized and or otherwise, who are part of its story. But within the proverb, to catch flying horses from the sky, there exists a summoning, an invitation to extend beyond the bounds of speculation of the future, to peer inwards and to ask ourselves, how do we build? How do we collectively imagine right now? And that is what the theme of the forum is, is to build a toolkit. So at the end of each session, the idea is to invite you as participants to use the space of the Q&A to proffer, offer suggestions as to how we can dream and imagine of the urgencies of contemporary African art now. What do we need? What are the aspects, the contingencies, the materials that artists need in the present? But also there are little pieces of paper and pens scattered about where you can write your thoughts in secret and anonymously and they will be collected at the end of each session and gathered together into a toolkit at the end of the two days of the forum, which will be published. So now we move into our first session, which is we call the overture number two, a replay. And the reason for that is last year's forum, Continental Drift, was an overture. The idea is what does it mean to tell stories and to dance into, in each other's shoes? From here we shall begin. I'd like to introduce our first guest, Koyo Ko, the curator storyteller, a cherished spirit who taught me to embrace my person and to dig beneath 
the lies that I was told growing up. Born in Cameroon, Koyo left an early start in business. As oft noted, her creative practice may have come into crystal view after encountering Margaret Busby's Daughters of Africa, an anthology of African women's writing, first published in 1992, which she worked to help translate into the German edition in 94. Indeed, Koyo speaks many languages. Fluent in French, German, English, and Italian, she is perhaps, though, most recognized amongst us who know her for her affective language, the expressive linguistics of and for art and its transmission. Through enduring and recurring collaboration to the likes of artists such as Ottobon Nakanga, Tracy Rose, Isa Samb, and Alfredo Yar, as well as with curators such as Rasha Salti and Simone Nejami, Koyoko's language has become all-encompassing, if not altogether enrapturing. Over the expanse of her esteemed career, Koyo has served as a curator of Bamako Encounters in Mali, and notably as the founding artistic director of Raw Material Company in Dakar, an advisor and an agent of Documenta 12 and 13. She has also worked in various strategic capacities with the Dakar Biennial, curated Ireland's Biennial Eva International, and since 2019 has led as Executive Director and Chief Curator of the Zeitz Mocha, the leading contemporary museum of African and African diasporic art. Most recently, you may have seen Koyo's work where she reunited with some of her collaborators, including Rasha Salti, whose words I invoked in my opening at the Hamburg Photography Triennial, where she served as artistic director and presented currency photography beyond capture. So now it's time to tell a story. Koyo is someone that has inspired many and created very various routes of transmission and spaces for art and artists. And indeed, we met in this building. Mm -hmm. Although we had been friends for years telekinetically, psychologically, it was in this building. Mm -hmm. And it felt on the 10th anniversary of the forum that we should begin with your wonderful, magnificent presence. Thank you so much for having me. I don't even let you ask your first question. I just, you know, it's, it's very emotional. First, first of all, thank you for, for thinking of uh, bringing me back for the 10th anniversary of 150th Foreign Forum. It's very emotional and it's very moving to, to be standing in this screening room after so, such a long time and also to, to see how Forum isn't such an integral part of the fair. I used to have a joke with, the, with, uh, with Forum is that uh, this space is a space of the imaginary, this is the space of the thinking, this is the space of criticality, while they are doing business upstairs, right? So, uh, so it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, thank you. I don't want to uh, speak further to, to that, it's just, it's just very, very emotional for me to be here. I mean, to see to here, to see you. And exactly, I mean, you said that. I invited so many people into this space 
to, to share, to, to think together, to, uh, that it became like uh, this very intellectual treasure trove, basically, mm. of people and, uh, and of ideas, yeah. And in that space, there's always been this commitment, I would say, to narrative. Mm. And 10 years ago, the world was very different mm. in terms of what it meant to present a narrative of an experience of being an African artist or an African diasporic artist or curator and so forth. And I just wondered in taking a step back, if possible even, what has been the most urgent sort of or significant outcome in that space of time for you as a practitioner? It's a difficult question because you're using the temporality of 10 years and you that's one thing. So there is the idea of temporality that you invoke. There is also the idea of uh, narratives mm. that you, you are addressing. And somehow I've, I, I like to work with larger temporalities, particularly when it comes to talk about us, about the continent and our relationship to ourselves and our relationship to the world. And I resist this very kind of reductive idea of time, you know. However, we, it's important to locate time sometimes and uh, it's important to, uh, to translate it. I, uh, I think that in 2012, what was really motivating us, I mean, Turia is really the, the main engine. I just, I came as, a, as an important support, but uh, as, a, as, a, as a paradoxically like to say publicly everywhere, I hate art fairs, right, mm -hmm. uh, genuinely. But at the same time, I totally reckon and understand the, the importance of art fairs, and particularly this art fair, which is for me, it's not just another art fair, it's not just another space, it's a very special uh, space that uh, was uh, politically necessary, and this is actually why I accepted to, uh, to be part of that adventure. So it was, a, it was also a question of positionality, and it's a question of, uh, marking a territory and, uh, and providing a, a, a space for you know, engagement with all these incredible artists and particularly, I mean, galleries, you know. I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for galleries, even though I hate art fairs. I have mm. a lot of respect for galleries uh, in, in a way that the uh, particularly small galleries who deal with, uh, you know, artists from the continent or the African diaspora at a time where, you know, a lot was very kind of uh, incidental, mm. so to speak. Uh, so the, the working against incidentality, I don't even know if that word exists, but you know what I mean. <laughs> and I have to say that, you know, we, we were very brave and the fact that we are here today is also the faith and dedication that uh, Turia and the team and myself and others who were part of it 
really poured into, into the work because I, I remember very clearly and I like to remind those people, some of them are around, you know, where nobody was believing in the project, you know, the usual kind of uh, stupid talk around, you know, anything that is uh, uh, designed and, uh, and framed as, uh, as African, uh, a lot of people were not believing in uh, in the in the project at all, and uh, talk uh, you know talking about ghettoizing. So, at the same time, I I told Turia we don't have to listen to to this noise because it's a lot of noise, and uh, the more noise you make uh, when you start an initiative. The, the better you, the better you, you I mean, the, the, the clearer, the surer it is that your initiative will succeed mm -hmm. because people don't make noise about things that are not, you know, meaningful. And to, to have a clear strategy and that I think that uh, the strategy was uh, clear and, and, uh, and uh, pursued in a, in a dedicated way. But beyond that, I think my, uh, coming back to the temporality, so my work and my engagement with uh, art and artists and institution building has always been animated and motivated by the, not just the desire, desire is to light the world, by mm. the urgency of creating spaces of our own in ways in which that we build agency and reclaim ownership of our imaginary. So, and I think that I see 154 as of the knot of institution building as mm. well, because it's an institution, it's an organization that mm. is, is, uh, is uh, sustainable and continuous. Not without difficulties, I'm sure. Turia is gone, but it's a... Uh, so that's a... Uh, but that's a point, Turia yeah. is gone, because yeah. running an institution, as you know, mm. sometimes involves running around and chasing uh, a very specific asset, you know, yeah. uh, that is essential to something's survival. But there is an, a very interesting point, is that you've built... You've been working with institution building with, you know, RAW in Dakar, but also now at Zeitz. Um, Zeitz Mocha. Zeitz Mocha. Zeitz Mocha. <laughs> and the, the labor that goes into mm. that, they are, they are similar. The, although the intention of the transmission may be different, mm. the actual methodologies of how you build the structures can be very similar. Mm -hmm. And we tend to be um, schooled in the thought that institution building in the not-for-profit sector should be completely devoid of any market connotation ah, context. Yeah. That's but the world has changed, yes. Um, first of all, I think that uh, the idea of uh, non-profit is an, an idea that is very misunderstood mm. as, a, as to what is the non and what is the profit, mm. so to speak. And uh, being a non-profit <coughs> doesn't necessarily mean that you don't generate income, mm. and doesn't mean that you're not part of an economy. Mm. So I think every field of work, every sector has their economy, 
and, uh, and the economy of the artistic space, the economy of the non-profit, the economy of arts organization, the arts institution, is an economy that is valid. And there is no shame if working and using that economy mm. for, for what we do. So, uh, yes, definitely, you know, and, and that economy, of course, like any other economy, has different scales, you know. So if you take, for instance, you know, a, a space like Raw Material Company, which is, you know, a, a beautiful, small uh, organization that has really, you know, over the past 14 years now, I have to say, mm -hmm. built a professional track record that is respected across the field, mm. you, you put it in, in comparison with Zeitzmoka that is at a totally different scale. However, uh, that's why I like to say size doesn't matter mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Of course, size can matter in terms of scaling here and there, but intrinsically, kind of essentially, Size doesn't matter. Content matters. Well, it's a know? very interesting point mm. to bring that because it's about uh, the the framing of the the way that certain questions are framed. So, for me, my entry into raw material companies through the condition reports mm. that you produced, the the dissemination and transmission mm -hmm. of voices mm -hmm. and knowledge, and it doesn't matter. To me, if that was in a, conceived in a room with five people or a room with 500 people, mm -hmm. the knowledge is the knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that has circulated in a, continued to circulate and exist, mm -hmm. even as you've been able to take on this new directorship at Zeitzmoke. And I wondered, if size doesn't matter, what does working in, say, a museum with a collection uh, that is state-governed in, in relation to the independent autonomous space of raw kind of create for you as a as a practitioner and a storyteller well in terms of uh, on the everyday logistics of course that smoka is less flexible mm. you know it's heavier to move mm. it's longer mm. whereas with raw it's spontaneous and mm. uh, and you know the the kind of uh, bureaucracy was uh, was less uh, uh, burdening. However, I, uh, I still believe that be it uh, a, a small organization like RAW, be it uh, a, a huge organization like uh, Zaitz Moka, first and foremost, our work is to be at the service of art and artists. Mm. So you can do it in a 100 square meter space as much as you can do it in a 5,000 square meter space. You have to be true to what you dedicate and commit to. I'm committed to be at service of art and artists, and not even necessarily to the audience. Of course, I have a lot of respect to the audience, mm. but I wake up in the morning to serve artists first, mm. and art. Everything else is a collateral, basically. Think, so, yeah. Thinking about artists, maybe we go back to the, your beginnings in terms of your relationships with artists. So, you know, I mentioned in the introduction uh, the, the literary impulse of these collected voices mm -hmm. as being a gateway. And then from there, can you tell us what, were the, what was the first kind of 
artists that you developed a sustained relationship with over time because as I, the figures that I mentioned are ones who you've continued to recurrently work with again and again in different mm. ways. I believe in duration and I believe that the artistic, the creative artistic process is a durational practice that cannot be cutting snippets, so to speak, because it's a very long process from the moment you have this vocation, if you're lucky, you get, you, you get an education, if you continue to persevere, you get a career, and so on and so forth, uh, as an artist. And that's one thing. The other thing also, I believe very strongly in being at service to artists. So this is where I see my role. I never, you know, uh, just as an anecdote, for the longest time I didn't, I was not comfortable even with the idea of curator. I'm a, you know, a producer, exhibition maker, mediator, so to speak. So that said, I also, I also think that there is a, a wealth and there is, a, there is a knowledge, there is a, you know, a value into maintaining long, sustainable uh, working relationship, which, as you know, in our field, becomes strong friendships, becomes family eventually. Mm. Yeah. So because we are in that space of the spirit, and that's mm. what spirits, you know, when all energies align and are positive, that's what spirits produce, mm. produces. So, of course, I think that there are three artists that are really kind of my, my holy trinity, mm. my kind of foundational holy trinity. You know, I can say uh, in the name of Isa, Otto, and Tracy, <laughs> you know? So, uh, I think that this is, uh, uh, this is where everything started for me. And that car, of course, as a location mm. that has uh, fueled a lot in my work and uh, in, my, in my trajectory. So, and, and adding to that, you've been talking about transmission. It's key. It's, uh, it's, I come from a, from, a, from a culture where, I mean, and I think many people come from that culture. It's not just me. It's uh, where you, you learn from where you come from, basically. Mm. And professionally, I wouldn't be here today if, you know, people like Okwi and Simon and Isa and others didn't, you know, take me by the hand mm. and support me and, you know, basically mm. mentored me and trained me into mm. my work. So I feel a, a, a profound responsibility of doing the same for younger mm. professionals. So everywhere I work, there is, that's mm. what I do. I mean, that's what we do at RAW and now at, even at Zeitz Moka. Mm. I, I cannot live without an education program that is a, a, a space of transmission of knowledge for young art professionals. So we started this fellowship program in collaboration with the University of Cape Town, where five young art professionals from across the continent uh, are awarded a fellowship of 12 months, which is attached to an honors degree 
at, uh, at the Center for Humanities at the University of Cape Town, where they work at the museum and they get trained and insight into, into what it means, you know, to be a, a museum educator, a museum curator, to, you know, even develop. And, you know, a lot of people underestimate uh, the importance of, uh, of development in, uh, in the context of museum and so on and so on. So uh, this is... This is, this is how I do it. And those narratives, just to finish very quickly, one of my mentors told me, told me once that publish or perish. Hmm. So whatever you do, you have to keep uh, a documentative, I don't know if you say it in English, like, you have to keep it like an archival memory, yeah. like a tangible kind of thing. Hmm. So uh, I, ha I was bulimic in my early Early, early beginnings in terms of publishing, as you know, I was like all yeah. the time. It's a bit quieter now. But, uh. but, I mean, you've touched on many things, and I mean, this idea of publish or perish is is, is very important because yeah. a lot of uh, institutions increasingly, and I I work in in a space that's at the kind of nexus or cross section of multiple different diasporas, if you will, and I'm told, oh, people don't read. And what ends up happening is that publishing is left to the end as a complete afterthought. And there is also this argument that the digital takes away from printed matter. But as someone who, who experiences so much of the world through the digital and, and, and is actually a proponent of it, I believe that the two things can be completely symbiotic and that they are different mediums, like mm -hmm. sculpture or painting. Mm -hmm. And so uh, how, do we, how, do, uh, how do we resist this tendency or, uh, of, of certain individuals wanting to create this act of erasure? Because I found it increasingly difficult to be able to raise funds, to gain support, to publish when 10 years ago, it was like a very different economy and landscape for, for that. And I think I also had that bulimic tendency of you know everything being documented and archived, but it was also a therapeutic, it was the working through of what had happened that was so important. It's a very difficult thing to articulate when someone is just looking at zeros and ones on a spreadsheet or an algorithm. Uh, what, is, what, what would your response be to, in terms of arguing for the archival? Oh, the archival is essential. I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today as people in the world and mm. people on earth without the archival. So, I mean, life and knowledge and society has always been transmitted to what? Objects and scriptures. That hasn't changed. And I think there are certain fundamental features like that of humanity that will never change. So objects and scriptures. You can, and I like the way you, you, you abstract it in terms of... Uh, you know, you can have it in a digital form as much as you can have it in a tangible physical form, but the principle is the same. Mm. You know, it's objects and scriptures. That's what is our mm. currency. And <laughs> you know, and I think that 
to continue to what you're saying is also the death of the book has been prophetized since at least 30 years, mm -hmm. yeah. It reminds me a little bit like to like Venice, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was growing up, I thought that by the time I'm my age, Venice was not exist anymore, mm -hmm. but it's still there. It doesn't mean that there mm -hmm. are no problems, of mm -hmm. course, but, but what I want to say by it is that it always depends where and who is saying what for whom and what uh, and why, right? Mm. Uh, I, uh, I, context defines everything, right? Mm. The context of the places that I usually work in, which is mainly the continent, even though, of course, I work globally in at different places, the dearth and the desire for knowledge is so clear. Mm. I work with arts called across the continent. I work with unstructured spaces of knowledge production mm. in uh, across the continent and you 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 see how much people want to have access mm. want to want so i totally understand that you know uh, euro america or the western space has this idea of that uh, this and this and that is not required anymore but it depends on context. I don't believe it. And as I said, you know, there are certain fundamental principles of uh, human interaction and human knowledge production that will never change. We will continue producing objects as we will continue producing scriptures mm. because this is how we relate. And I, I think the idea to keep producing scriptures especially, is especially urgent where scriptures have been destroyed, dismantled, mm erased or are not able to be publicly revealed, correct? Mm. So wh whether it's because of the socio-political or economic context. And so one of the theoretical ideas that I've certainly used or cling to since uh, 2007 is Sadia Hartman's concept of critical fabulation, which isn't just distinctly hers, right? I mean, it's basically the idea that we can use fiction mm -hmm. uh, to fill in the gaps mm -hmm. where the story needs to be narrated and told and seen. And I, I wondered if one of the things that you have talked about is how mentors mm -hmm. have kind of created that, filled that knowledge mm -hmm. uh, space and held hands and those mentors are not necessarily older or mm. they, they are f they are they are you know people who inspire you yeah. people who open doors for you people who open spaces mental spaces for you so actually uh, you're totally right it's not like a age thing it's not like an older person and the younger person you know you can have mentors who are even younger than you mm. you know because you learn from them and they learn from you I think mentorship is key, and I think some classical, traditional African philosophy and societies are, to a large extent, structured around mentorship, mm. so around transmission, mm. around educating in ways in which that may not be framed as uh, education, but it's nonetheless uh, uh, educational space. And, uh, and I, I like the idea that it's, you know, the problem with, uh, with our, no, it's not a problem. The thing with the, the contact of uh, the continent with Europe is that the West didn't understand what they were encountering. Mm -hmm. 
So based on that ignorance and non-understanding, other interpretations mm. of our cultural, social grammar and vocabulary and our mental philosophy or our intellectual kind of framework of uh, understanding life mm. uh, has been totally uh, misinterpreted in ways in which that I think it's very important to reclaim that space. Mm. And not necessarily, and when I say reclaim, it's not the idea of going back, you know, mm. 500 years ago how things are, but reclaiming an agency of authority about what mm. we think, what we feel, and what we put out there. Mm. So, and the artistic, the artists are the best, mm. actually, to, mm. to, to do that and to translate that. And anything I can do to... For me, the mentors have been artists mm. because I also have never felt comfortable with the term curator in that it assumes an act of caring, but I believe that the act of caring has to be a two-way act of caring. And if it isn't, then it doesn't work. I, I somehow feel uncomfortable with this notion that one has that enshrined in, the, in a title. So I really haven't felt that anyone comes close to a curator comes close to an artist for me and that's why i want to go to your holy trinity actually <laughs> to you know my holy trinity is, so i uh, love know, my holy trinity you know, isa, uh, isa, <laughs> and tracy rose i mean they are free artists who each approach the, the world in completely different ways or did i mean in the case of um R.I.P. to some, but, but also whose approach to the concept of what it means to be African, to African philosophy, theories, and so forth. And I think I want to use the Holy Trinity as a lens to ask you about the big question, which is, okay, we are 10 years on with this mm -hmm. event, and what does it mean to talk about or speak about African art today in the context of the world that we live in. It, we have multiple issues that you mentioned at the outset, ghetto, no ghetto, solidarity, no solidarity, cultural specificity, no cultural specificity, market, no market. But using the lens of the Holy Trinity mm. and these three people's perspectives, mm. how would you say or think that if you brought them all together, they would approach the context of what is African art now, you know? Because they're, they're there, right? Mm -hmm. For you always. Yeah. Nothing. Mm. That might be disturbing as an answer. Nothing, mm. because particularly that Holy Trinity, regardless of their very clear and strong kind of foundation, and in African societies of the every respective societies that they respectively come from, I mean, for Isa, the labor culture in, in Senegal, for Oto, the Ibibio culture in Nigeria, for Tracy, the colored culture in South Africa. They are artists that I think transcend that kind of condition or mm. that kind of identity, mm. so to speak and to really create universes of their own to address questions and uh, ideas that have a strong 
footage or locationality, you say that? Location, located yeah. on the continent without necessarily being advocative, so mm. to speak, right? Yeah. And I think this is why they became interesting for me. Mm. The ways in which Otto, for instance, has systematically and continuously build her practice that is very strongly rooted into, you know, her concern about the memory of the soil, her concern about ecology, and how uh, that is, you know, relate to her cultural background. But at the same time, you know, opening up the, the, the spectrum of aesthetics and the spectrum of forms that mm. go way beyond any uh, location. So, and I think, and Isa the same. Mm. I mean, Isa, I can't even begin to speak about mm. Isa here. And Tracy the same, mm. even though it's very clearly located in South Africa. Mm. So I think that that is what makes, for me, any artist for the matter, interesting. Mm. So how does it relate to me? For me personally, I, as you mentioned it in your, in your introduction, I, I was not supposed to be, I was not trained to be a curator, you know, working in, in this. I mean, and by <laughs> just as, a, as, a, as an anecdote, you know, it's only when I became director of Zaitz Mocha that my mother started to take me seriously, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Because before that, it was ah, all this art thing, you know? <laughs> Couldn't understand. Are you making money somehow, you know? So uh, it's only when I became the, direct, the director of Zeitz Mocha, I was like, mm, okay, maybe I have to take this more seriously. That is to say that how does that relate to my practice? I entered this space as a militant, right? Because as a young, professional living in Western Europe in the late 80s, I, I found, I really felt like I'm, uh, as a young African person, I have to say, living in Western Europe in the late 80s, and it doesn't necessarily matter in which country, could have been the UK, France, you mm. know, Germany, Switzerland, what have you. It's, uh, it's the space that was uh, what that was like. I felt like being in a, at the theater, looking at the play where there is no role that resembles me, so mm. to speak. So, and I didn't want to participate in that. So I decided very early to move back to, mm. to the continent. And by moving back to the continent, not necessarily to Cameroon, because I was born and raised in Cameroon, I, I've always had this, understanding of the, of the largeness and of the, how do you know, uh, say the entanglement, mm. if you want, and the continuity and the relationality of the entire continent. Mm. You know, we've had a lot of yeah. conversation about that. So for me, it was uh, this militant engagement with, uh, you know, in a space where I felt that it was very important for us to reclaim our vocabulary, as I was mm. saying earlier, and also to, to really do it from a totally un, unapologetic manner and uh, in ways that really give us the agency and the ownership that I was mentioning mm. before. So I feel extremely privileged and humbled by 
having had the opportunity to build these relationships with the artists that I've been working with and coming back to temporality again, you know. You know, there are lots of curators you that, you know, the the work with artists in ways in which that, oh, this artist is interesting now, or let's do a show, or let's include him there and there. And then you don't hear from them anymore. Mm. Poof, they disappear. They've checked their box. They are gone. Mm. Okay? I prefer another way. And uh, that's why in many of my exhibitions you have recurrent names that mm. come back. But it's not, uh, it's not a nepotism or whatever. Mm. It's a long conversation. I, I think on that note, mm. the, the possibility of, of our human selves to contribute to the discourse is uh, a note to leave with. We invite you, if you have uh, comments, suggestions, for our toolkit to write them down and Cam will have a bag or Alex will have a bag at the end. You see the fake Nike Hassan Hajjaj bag. If you have statements, comments or words about the urgencies that we should think about now. But I think the conversation shall continue. As we always do. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much, you Claudia. So much.